But, but to us who are being saved, in it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who, who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised of God which has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ, Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. That, as it is written... He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. It seems that no matter where you look, people are asking about Jesus. As we mentioned earlier, we are coming up on a time of year where a record number of people in our country will be asking questions about Jesus. And because of recent current events, and because of a movie that's made headlines, people are asking questions about Jesus. Even people outside this country are asking questions about Jesus. I know all week there will be several individuals from this congregation and from a few others that are effort in El Salvador. And we've prayed for them already this morning, and I would encourage all of us to keep them in our prayers as they'll be working all week. And some will be pulling teeth and some will be scrubbing heads and some will be taking care of maintenance work, but everybody will be doing the Lord's work while they're there. And so let's pray for them and, and pray that they'll have a safe trip back and that the Lord will be able to work through them and a lot of good will be done. Uh, there are also some of our young people that are asking questions about Jesus. If you've ever spent time in a young Bible class, you've seen the kinds of questions that can come up. And so as we think about starting off the month of April, on Sunday afternoons, beginning this Sunday and every Sunday following, at 5.45, we'll have our pew packers that will come right up front. And they'll meet in these first few rows, and we'll sing a few songs, and we'll learn some Bible lessons. So if you're age four, all the way up to the fourth grade, or even our older uh, children and adults that want to be involved can be, we're going to be teaching uh, God's Word for 15 minutes before our worship services on Sunday evening. So remember that, beginning today. There are a great many different ways we can answer questions about Jesus. You may be here this morning because you have questions about Jesus. And if you're visiting with us, we're excited that you're here and we want to get a chance to meet you and to get to know you and help you in any way that we can. 
as we look through the study we've been going through over the past few weeks, David is with that group in El Salvador, but I'd like for us to continue the line of thinking that he's begun. We've been going through on Sundays looking at the life of Jesus. Specifically, we've been looking at the cross. And so today I'd like for us to consider for just a few minutes what the cross looks like from our standpoint. Last week we talked about how the Lord views the cross, what the cross looks like from God's standpoint. Now let's take a human perspective. Let's look at our vantage point and see what we can learn from the cross. As we do that, we'll be looking at this text that was read in 1 Corinthians. And I also want you to get a mental image in your mind. As we begin, of the perfect gift. Imagine in your mind the best present you've ever received. Now, I don't know what that is for you. Maybe it was a birthday present growing up. Uh, you remember what it was like during childhood. You would know weeks, even months ahead of your birthday, what you wanted. And I guarantee that as I was growing up, boy, you could ask me months in advance what I was going to ask for for my birthday, and I knew it. I had it in my mind, and I think we can all relate to that. And we know what it was like when the day finally arrives and you see all those presents. And you remember the feeling as you're opening presents, and if you're like me, it was a real exercise of patience to make it through the blowing out the candles and eating the birthday cake and not just dive straight into the presents. And as we're moving through, you remember seeing that one package, and you knew what was inside that package. You could tell by the size and the shape that that was what you were waiting for. Remember the excitement that you felt? As we think about looking at the cross from a human perspective, I want us to think about the greatest gift that we could ever receive. I want you to keep that image in mind as we read these words of Paul and some others in the scriptures. Remember what it's like receiving that perfect present, that present you've been waiting for, that you've been dying to open. Paul, as he's writing the Corinthians, is addressing a group of people who are living in the midst of sin. They are in the middle of a society that is very sinful in nature. Some are living immorally. Some are living in worship to idols. In fact, many in the church at Corinth had lived that lifestyle. And they'd lived that way all their life, and they'd been called out of it. Once they were converted, they were now living a Christian lifestyle. And so Paul addresses a whole lot of issues in the book of 1 Corinthians, but he starts out by talking about unity. They were having some problems with unity, and in this chapter, uh, Paul addresses that issue, and it's interesting that when he addresses the issue of unity, he points them back to the cross. In our Wednesday night Bible class, we studied the book of 1 John recently. And there was a great deal of division taking place in the church. And the first thing that John does to deal with that in the first chapter, he points people back to Jesus. Paul does the same thing. In verse 18, he says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I'd like for us to skip on down to verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul here is pointing out the fact that the cross to men often seems foolish. But Paul is telling them, you better watch out. It might seem foolish in man's eyes, but it will be proved to be wise. I think there are a few reasons when we look at the cross that it seems foolish to men. I think the first reason is because the cross was painful. The cross was very painful. And in the movie that has made headlines and has caused such a stir, uh, many people are reacting to the fact that it tries to depict some of the violence that took place in the crucifixion. Now, we realize that there's probably no way we could accurately record or understand all the violence that was involved in that process. But I think it's important for us to remember 
uh, that the cross was very painful. And we see the cross as we're driving down the road in front of church buildings, or we might see it on a billboard, or on a t-shirt, or on jewelry. But originally, the cross was an instrument of death. It hasn't been very long ago that at Duke University, a group of students was trying to film a project. And as part of this project, they were going to set up a scene where someone was sentenced to death by hanging. And so they'd set up a gallows, and they set it up in front of the chapel on campus. And so many people wrote into the local paper, and they couldn't believe that someone would set that up in front of a chapel. And they said, you know, people who were wanting to go there for religious reasons don't want to see an instrument of death right in front of the chapel. That's grotesque. It's unsightly. No one wants to see that. And the irony, of course, is that there was a cross proudly displayed in that same area. See, sometimes we forget that the cross was an instrument of pain. It was an instrument of death. We see in Jesus' crucifixion, John chapter 19, verse 1, tells us that before he was crucified, he was scourged. He was beaten. And we know from what history tells us that that beating was nothing to be taken lightly. In fact, a Roman flogging was very brutal. And you've probably heard the instrument that was used that was not just a whip, but it was a whip that had several braided ends in which little metal balls and pieces of rock and sharp pieces of bone were tied in, so that not only would that whip strike someone and hurt them, but it would also hang on to the flesh. When they pulled it out, it would rip the skin. It was incredibly painful. And you can imagine, having been beating with that over and over again, how a victim's back would look, not only tearing the skin, but, but also the, the muscle tissue. It, it makes us cringe to think about what took place in that scourging. Many died just from the flogging alone. But Jesus not only was scourged, but he was also crucified. And it's interesting that the Gospels don't spend a whole lot of time describing the process in detail. The original audience would have understood exactly what it meant to be crucified. I thought it was interesting that the word we use often, uh, the word excruciating, we use that to describe pain. Well, it has its roots in the word crucifixion. It has its roots in the meaning out of the cross. In other words, a word we use to describe terrible pain has its roots in the cross. It was designed to afflict the maximum amount of pain possible while still keeping the victim alive. So as we think about the cross, the cross was very painful. And you can imagine if you were uh, a Jew, as you were reading this, as, as Paul says in verse 22, uh, the Jews were asking for signs. They were looking for a Messiah. And a Messiah that was, that was crucified, that submitted to such pain, probably wouldn't have fit the description they were looking for in their mind. You can imagine the scene at the cross. After all of this uh, inflicting of pain had taken place, usually uh, we know that the victims on the cross would have been nailed both in their hands and their feet, and we know that happened to Jesus. And that would have crushed several nerves. Not only that, but probably dislocated the shoulders. And then comes probably the uh, most difficult part for us to think about, and that is that the victim on the cross has to continually pull themselves up in order to receive some oxygen to breathe and then slump back down since that position is so difficult to withstand. And so most victims would die from heart failure, or even asphyxiation, not being able to take in enough oxygen. And so you can imagine, as Paul is writing this, and he talks about Christ crucified being a stumbling block 
to the Jews, you can imagine the mental picture they had in their mind. They knew all too well what a crucifixion looked like. And they knew all too well what the cross meant. And so as they think about all the pain uh, that Jesus went through, it probably didn't fit in with their vision of what a Messiah would look like. You can imagine growing up in a Jewish environment, hearing all the stories about the Old Testament characters that we know existed, and all the prophecies that pointed towards a Savior. And you're under Roman rule, and wouldn't it be tempting, if you're waiting on a Messiah, to wait for someone to come through and to deliver you from the Romans? Wouldn't it have been tempting to think about a Messiah setting up an earthly kingdom? And so as we see Jesus' life, we see that his life flies in the face of earthly wisdom. And time and time again, people are looking for an earthly kingdom, and Jesus is talking about a spiritual kingdom. When Jesus begins his ministry, he doesn't choose the major political players of the day, and he doesn't pick those people who have religious influence. He picks fishermen and a tax collector, and he spends time with sinners, and he allows women with bad reputations to talk to him in public. And even when there are a lot of other important adults around, Jesus would time, from time to time spend time with children. It just doesn't make sense. And in the garden as they're seizing Jesus and they're ready to take him away and Peter pulls out his sword and he's ready to fight. And not only is he ready, but he does. And he strikes the ear off of Malchus. You remember that Jesus wasn't ready to fight. In fact, he was led through the mockery of a trial. And Paul would write in Philippians that he became obedient to death in chapter 2, even death on a cross. Jesus became obedient to one of the most painful forms of death imaginable. The cross was painful. And it would have been difficult for them to understand also because the cross was shameful. We see in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, we see that everyone who hung on a tree was cursed. According to Jewish law, those who hung on a tree were cursed. So you can imagine the Jewish reaction when they said that their Messiah was crucified. Crucifixion was for the lowest of criminals. Crucifixion was for the vilest of offenders. It couldn't be for the Messiah. A crucified Messiah would have been a contradiction in terms. It would have been so difficult to understand if you were using earthly human wisdom. But if you were trying to gain some spiritual insight from the 22nd Psalm or Isaiah 53, a crucified Savior fit in exactly with those prophecies. If you were a Roman in a society that emphasized might and power, a crucifixion would have been a sign of weakness wouldn't have been the sign of, of a powerful son of God, someone who submitted to that kind of death. I think it's interesting, too, that Paul, in verse 22, says that the Jews asked for signs and the Greeks searched for wisdom. And the Greek culture valued wisdom and education very highly. Socrates was once quoted as saying that the key to a successful society is education. And we can get a glimpse of that when we look at Acts chapter 17, in verse 21, you remember Paul, when he was about to deliver his sermon on Mars Hill in Athens, a city not too far away from Corinth, found that there were men there who, verse 21 tells us, did nothing but sit around and talk about the latest ideas. They were talking about the newest philosophy. Whatever was the latest thing, that's what they wanted to discuss. And a society that valued education had valued it so much that they outsmarted the cross. They were too smart for a crucified Savior. You mean, as, as John tells us, that the Word became flesh, that He dwelt among us, and then He was crucified? I'm too smart for that. Sorry, try that on someone else. And while education is valuable, we see that they valued it so highly, they were blind to the spiritual wisdom found in the cross. In Galatians 5, in chapter 11, in verse 11, 
Uh, Paul uses the same word that he uses here to describe the cross when he calls it a stumbling block. Uh, in Galatians 5 and 11, it's sometimes translated in offense. And I think it's interesting that the word he uses, the cross being a stumbling block or an offense, later on that root would form our English word, scandal. And so that gives us a hint of what it would have meant. that The cross would have been shameful. It would have been disgraceful. And so for the Son of God to be subjected to such humiliation would have been difficult for many to swallow. And do you remember as well as I do the mocking that took place? Those who spat upon him? Those who made fun of him and taunted him? It is hard to imagine. The cross was painful and the cross was shameful. But I think the main reason that the cross often uh, fails to register when we're thinking in human wisdom, but it makes a lot of sense when you're thinking spiritually, is that the cross was spiritual. There have been others who have died terrible physical deaths. And there have been others who have been humiliated and tortured and then put to death. But this death was different because it was spiritual. And there was a lot of physical suffering involved and there was a lot of disgrace involved. And we need to remember that. It's important that we remember that. But it's also important that we don't forget the cross was spiritual. And the cross was more than just a good man who was stepping up and sacrificing his life. The cross was a man who was 100% divine and 100% human giving his life for us. In Romans chapter 5, Paul would say that at just the right time, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It wasn't just a sacrifice for a good or perfect people, people who had achieved perfection or righteousness. It was a sacrifice for us, people who were ungodly, who had sinned, who were nowhere near perfect. The sacrifice was made for us. And so it's interesting, as Paul writes in verse 24, to those who are the called, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. It's difficult to imagine a weaker image physically than someone on the cross. But there's no more powerful image spiritually than Jesus on the cross. One of my favorite verses in the entire New Testament is found in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. And the reason I like it so much is because it reminds me that Christ lived the same way we did, but that verse tells us that he lived without sin. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet he lived without sin. Later on in that same book, the writer would say in chapter 10 and verse 10, he would describe Christ's sacrifice as a once for all sacrifice. Not only did Christ live in the same kind of body that I'm living in right now, he did it a lot better than I am. He lived in it and he didn't sin. Not only that, but he sacrificed himself in a once for all sacrifice. And it wasn't the same kind of sacrifice we see in the Old Testament. As people week in and week out had to sacrifice and make atonement for their sins, this was different. This was better. This was a once for all sacrifice. And you and I no longer have to make those regular sacrifices. We have the one who did it for us. I think it's important for us to remember that the gospel writers, even especially uh, Luke 
as he was writing his gospel, he didn't spend much time talking about the details of the crucifixion. He didn't go into the physical description of what happened. His readers would have known that. And Luke was a physician, so he would have had a great deal of expertise on what happened physically to the body. Luke didn't record that in detail. But you know what he did record in the book of Acts? Acts chapter 2, as Peter is speaking to the crowd on Pentecost, he spent his time recording something much more important, the spiritual ramifications of the cross. Look at verse 36 in Acts chapter 2. Peter says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The cross was physical and the cross was shameful, but the cross was spiritual. And our Savior sacrificed a once-for-all sacrifice so that you and I who've lived sinful lives and we've made mistakes, we can be a part of that sacrifice. And you know what Peter does right here? Is he gives us divine instructions on how to unwrap the greatest gift we could ever imagine. Do you remember that gift we talked about earlier? Well, even if you didn't know it before we came in here this morning, we've been given the greatest gift any of us could ever desire. We can't fathom how wonderful God's love is for us. We can't understand it. But what we can understand is that he's given us a gift that we couldn't have earned on our own. Think about opening a gift on your birthday. When you unwrap the paper and you rip open the top of the box and you pull it out, obviously nothing you've done has earned that gift. If you were to give me a gift and I unwrapped it and I took the ribbon off and I took the box top off and I said, boy, I've earned this. That was a lot of hard work. You'd probably laugh at me. See, there's no way we could earn the gift given to us at the cross. There's no way we could do it. But we do have to take action to unwrap that gift. We do have to do something to access that gift. And Paul gives a divine instruction for unwrapping it. First, in verse 36, he says you have to know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is Lord and Christ. Then look at what he says in verse 38. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not only do we have to know that Jesus is the Christ, but we have to turn our lives around and put him on in baptism. That's how we unwrap the gift. That's how we become a part of God's family. That's how we receive a gift greater than we can imagine, a present better than we can comprehend. And Peter tells us how to do that. When we think about the cross from a human perspective, yes, it was painful. I doubt any of us can fully imagine what all Jesus went through on the cross. It was shameful. It would be difficult for us to understand the kind of disgrace associated with the death on the cross, but it was spiritual. At just the right time, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. For those people who were nailing him to the cross, he died for them. For all of his followers who scattered as soon as someone seized him, he died for them. And for you and I, who live sinful lives, and day after day we make mistakes, that death was for us as well. During the presidency of Andrew Jackson, a man named George Wilson was put on trial. He'd been involved in a train robbery, and they were robbing a federal payroll, and in the robbery he had seemingly accidentally killed a guard. The court sentenced him to death. And so as he was preparing to have his sentence carried out, there were a group of people that were very upset. I mean, it seemed like it was an accident. He seemed genuinely contrite. He didn't mean to do it. And so as they talked to the president, they finally convinced him to grant that person a pardon. And so George Wilson, who was an accused murderer, was granted a pardon. But in a move that surprised everyone, he refused it. 
And they didn't understand why he would refuse a chance at life. He was going to die, but he'd refused it a for a chance to, to live. He'd, he'd had that held out in front of him, and he said no. And so people started asking each other, well, is someone allowed to do that? Eventually, he went to the Supreme Court, and they said, can someone refuse a pardon? And they decided that if someone had been pardoned and didn't want to accept it, they would take their punishment. It's difficult for us to imagine why someone who was set up for death and had a chance at life would pass up that pardon. You know, it's even more difficult to imagine why someone who's been given the greatest gift of all, the cross of Jesus, and the great part is the story didn't end there. Jesus was also raised from the dead, giving us a chance at eternal life. And so we have that greatest gift. We have a chance for life, and not just physical life, but an eternal life with our Father. And we have that chance and to pass up that pardon from our sins, to pass up that opportunity for life. Wouldn't it be that same kind of mistake? If you're here this morning and maybe you've never heard about that pardon, maybe you've never heard about that gift, maybe you've, you've thought that gift might have existed, but you just didn't know how to unwrap it or how to be a part of it. The word of the gospel is, is simple, it's clear, and it's beautiful. And it lets us know that because of that once-for-all sacrifice, we can live in a saved relationship with God. We can do that if we submit to His will, put Him on in baptism and live in a redeemed state, walking with the Lord. You know, as we think about the greatest gift of all time, as a child, can you imagine seeing a gift that you wanted so badly and saying, well, I really want this. I've wanted it for so long, but I'm just going to leave it right here for a second. I'll come back maybe next week and open it up. I know it's inside. I'll just wait a couple months and open it up later. If you could have done that, you'd have a lot more patience than I did as a child. I wanted to rip it open. I wanted to share it with everybody. And time and time again throughout the New Testament, we see people discovering the possibility of salvation and wanting to rip it open immediately, to unwrap that package, to share it with everyone they know. The Ethiopian eunuch telling Philip, here's water. Can I be baptized? What's stopping me? I want to be a part of this. And so as we're here this morning, if you found out about this gift for a first time, I would encourage you to take the same approach we see time and again through the New Testament. Don't hesitate. Become a part of this group of people who would love nothing more than to be called your brothers and sisters in Christ. And accept that perfect gift. Or maybe you've opened that gift and you've received that pardon, but you've just been, been living like you've forgotten what it really means to be pardoned from your sins. We all face different challenges in our lives. And I don't know where you are or what questions you have about Jesus. But if there's any way that we can help you unwrap or maybe even greater appreciate the gift God gave us at the cross, please come as we stand and sing together.